What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, Trump and Putin, the United States and Russia, Stephen Cohen will comment. And we'll also talk about Trump and history with Eric Foner. The Nation has just published a collection of his writings from the magazine. But first, Laura Poitras's new film, Risk, opens May 5th. It documents six years in the life of Julian Assange. Laura Poitras received the Oscar for Best Documentary for her previous film, Citizen Four. That's the one about Edward Snowden. She also won a Pulitzer in 2014 and a MacArthur Genius Grant in 2012. Laura Poitras, welcome. Hey, great to be here. So Risk is an amazing portrait. Uh, Six years in the making, you started shooting it before Edward Snowden contacted you. You said aside the Assange project to make Citizen Four. Then you returned to finish it. The two films are quite different. In Citizen Four, you are very much in the background. Risk has more of you in it. You have a voiceover where you describe your dreams and nightmares. You quote from your production diaries. I thought I could ignore the contradictions. I was wrong. They are becoming the story. How did you decide to do it to do it that way, especially with the voiceover and the diaries? So the voiceover came about with I realized that I so I wanted to sort of present a narrative that had complexity and contradictions, and that it was it was a vehicle to tell the audience some of the contradictions I was feeling when I when I was filming. So the the voiceover that you hear were things that I was writing as uh, journaling as I was shooting. So trying sort of navigating what's the story about, what am I filming, what's going on, and and those had they had a lot of contradictions in them, and um, and so I wanted to, to have a, a film that was really complex where you, there was a, a protagonist and a person who has um, I think done a lot of things that are incredibly admirable and is brilliant in many ways and is flawed in many ways. You know, films are sometimes people like to have to to, to know what to feel or what to think. And you know, is, is it positive or negative? And what if what do you do when it's both? And and so this was um, a way to sort of help to to tell that narrative and to to help the audience. What do you do when it's both? You know, some of the critics sort of missed that part of it. I would say the the one in the Guardian says, I quote, "You traded access for impartiality." Seems to me impartiality was never your goal. Has never been your goal. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, just look at any of my films. I mean, I, I I never trade access for anything, but I do try to tell stories that are intimate and that are told from the perspective of the people that I'm, that I'm filming with. I mean, I'm interested in everyone's perspective. So, I mean, I would have, I would love to film inside the NSA if they ever let me. It's like, it's not that I'm, you know, they just, you know, they haven't let me inside yet, but, but I'm interested in getting close and I'm interested in understanding from the perspective of the people that I'm filming with, but I'm never trading any, you know, one thing for another. 
With Julian Assange, everybody knows what they think about him before they see this film. And what everybody knows now is that Donald Trump said, I love WikiLeaks, probably the three most famous words ever said about WikiLeaks. And a lot of people will tell you that WikiLeaks worked with the Russians to help make Donald Trump president. Do you see that as a, a challenge to you in making the film, or does it provide a dramatic ending to your story? Actually, I'm going to push back on that a little bit and tell me what evidence you have. Like, what have you heard of, you know, direct working with the Russian government? What, what's what been alleged is that they used a, an intermediary to, to, to submit to WikiLeaks. So look, yes. we don't know, and Julian hasn't said, whether or not he knew who, you know, the, the identity of that intermediary. Um, WikiLeaks has a anonymous submission system where anyone um, can submit information um, that they believe to be newsworthy. I think from Julian's perspective and what he said is that he verified the authenticity of, of the emails and the newsworthiness of the emails, and he published them based on those that criteria. Now, which doesn't erase the larger question of whether or not other nation states are trying to game our elections and and what to right. do about that. And I, but I do think that those are separate those are separate questions. You know, there is a sort of yeah narrow ideological dialogue happening around um, this this election. And I think we should sort of just step back and look at what actually the facts are and and what are the sort of response to what we know. So so I think that the challenge that, you know, not knowing who a source is or what the source's motivation, if, if particularly if that source is a nation state, is a question that's not just being posed to WikiLeaks, but to the New York Times, the Washington Post, yeah. to the nation, etc. And um, and I think we're we're just sort of in this new era of massive leaks, and what happens if those massive leaks are being gamed to for political outcomes? And I also think we should say like this is not you know new stuff. I mean the CIA is tries to influence elections you know historically. So so I think you know the. Um, uh, I, I, let's put it. Let's let's talk about these things with a bit more complexity and in a historical fair, perspective. Fair enough. And every serious publisher tries to protect confidential sources. There's nothing unusual about that. Absolutely. There's always there seems to be this constant double standard around WikiLeaks, where people constantly ask them of who their source is, and like, do, are we asking James Risen or Bob Woodward who their source is? No, we're not. I mean, the the, the role of journalists is to protect sources. Um, the only thing that that would make uh, WikiLeaks publishing the the uh, DNC hack docs problematic would be if Assange also received documents about from the Republican National Committee that he didn't publish because he wanted to hurt Hillary. I mean, we do think the Russians probably hacked the the Republicans too, and that they wanted to hurt Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. But do you know anything more about this? I don't. Julian's very consistent um, about uh, ideologically why he makes information available. I'd be very surprised if he had, for yeah. instance, RNC emails and chose not to publish them. I think if if that choice was made, it was made by another party. That's speculation based on his his philosophy. He does have an ideology, but it's not about Republicans and, and Democratic, you know, election process. It's a, it's a larger ideology about believing in the importance of information um, being made available to to citizens and, um, and and that that advances civilization. Fair enough. And there's another risk in your your film that seems to be on the mind of Julian Assange, and that is the the allegations of sexual abuse and rape in Sweden, which have caused him to 
eventually seek asylum in the Ecuadorian... That's not, I mean, not quite the facts, because he has asylum uh, based on threats. So the Ecuadorian government has given him asylum based on threats of U.S. prosecution. Yes. And so that's why he has asylum. He was concerned that if he were to go to Sweden for the questioning around the allegations um, of of abuse and rape, that, that once in custody, he would be then sent to the U.S., yeah, so he's he he and, is not seeking to avoid a trial in Sweden. He's seeking to avoid extradition to the United States. And there's plenty of evidence to say that there is a massive investigation that's been going on for many, many, many years. So I don't. I, I think his concern um, about the U.S. Um, investigation into his publishing is real, and 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 it's certainly become more real with the recent comments by um, the director of the CIA and and the attorney general. But if we're going to take seriously the women who accused Bill O'Reilly of sexual misconduct, harassment, and abuse, I guess we should do the same with uh, women who uh, accused Julian Assange. Sure. I mean, the, my film doesn't pull punches around those Correct. issues. Um, it, it addresses, the, I think, um, some of the um, issues around sexism, misogyny um, that, that, that are sort of prevalent in, in the hacker community. Um, those are very separate. I mean, I just want to say that Julian hasn't been charged um, in Sweden. It's an ongoing investigation. It's clearly very politicized because why does it take six years whether or not to, to know if you're going to charge? I mean, there's ser- there's obviously other political factors that are happening. Um, so he hasn't been charged. But what the film reveals are sort of more attitudes and um, are, are around gender. And and, um, and then there are the allegations um, that were made towards Jacob Applebaum that are also part of the film. And and what I'm trying to do with that is like not shy away. Like let's look at how um, political movement organizations um, often uh, excuse, um, enable abusive behavior or attitudes. And, And let's not make that, let's not say that because somebody's doing good work or because they're at risk that you don't talk about those things. And so I'm, I, I hope that the film will, be a way to um, have a conversation about how to do it better, right? Like that, that you know, it's, and it's not the first movement or group of people who've had, you know, internal politics that are kind of messed up. Some of the critics say this film, that you're too close to Julian Assange, that the film is too much in defense of him. That isn't the way Julian Assange sees it today. So there was a version of the of the film that um, that I screened last year, and I I made changes to address the the issues around gender and abuse, um, for around two factors. One, um, two weeks after I screened at Con, there were new allegations concerning Jacob Applebaum that I knew that I needed to include in the film. And, that's, and Jacob that's, Applebaum is an associate of WikiLeaks, yeah. who's the head of the Tor project, and. He, not the head of the Tor Project, Tor. but works at the Tor Project, okay. or previously worked um, yes. at the Tor Project. You see in the film that that he stepped down. Um, that I needed to address that, and then before, you know, Julian also was pressuring me to to remove scenes in the film that address um, the issues around uh, the Swedish case, and there was pressure on that. And I just felt like with with those two factors, I, that that was the motivating um, reason why I went back and continued editing. And when we were continuing editing, is when. Um, the the leaks with the DNC and and Podesta started to to emerge, and so that changed the story yet again. You quote a text that Assange sent you after seeing the film, quote, presently the film is a severe threat to my freedom, and I'm forced to treat it accordingly, close quote. I found that a shocking thing to say. I certainly don't see it as a threat to his freedom. Do you see it that way? Um, Yeah, that's a question for Julian. (laughs) 
I mean, all I can say is that there was pressure and demands to remove the scenes in the film that deal with um, the Swedish investigation. And I didn't um, make those changes. You had to recut the ending in the last couple of weeks because of the statements made about, quote, leakers, including WikiLeaks by Attorney General Jeff Sessions. What exactly was it that he said? It's really frightening. So there was actually two uh, statements. Um, there was first a very lengthy um, speech given by Pompeo, the director of the CIA, attacking WikiLeaks very directly and saying that they don't have protection under the First Amendment, etc. And then uh, soon after that was Jeff Sessions' comments saying that they're going to aggressively go after all leakers and and put people in jail. And that was in, in response to a question by a journalist um, about WikiLeaks and Julian. So these are very real and very direct threats. And I, and I think we should say that they're not just threats against Julian and WikiLeaks, they're threats against sources, they're threats against the free press. And, and those are threats that, um, that Trump ran on. And so we shouldn't be surprised to hear them. And we should definitely condemn them because they're uh, they concern all of us, and they and their direct attacks on the First Amendment and the free press. Julian Assange's defense here is extremely simple. He is a publisher. People bring him information. If it's newsworthy, he publishes it. That's the same thing the New York Times does. And I think the New York Times does see that a prosecution of WikiLeaks would also implicitly undermine their basis of their work, and they would, I would hope, would defend him. Yeah, I, I believe so. I think it would, there would be an enormous amount of solidarity um, among the press if if they were to target, charge WikiLeaks for publishing. The title is Risk. We also think about the risk to to you, especially since you have a tape of an FBI agent telling someone about you, and they don't say that you won an Oscar, a Pulitzer, and a MacArthur Genius Grant. What is it that the FBI says about you in this tape? Um, an anonymous source sent me uh, audio tape that he'd recorded of the head of the uh, counterintelligence office in the New York FBI field office speaking about me um, at a intelligence gathering. And um, the, the, the source was disturbed by how it was framed. And so this was recorded in 2016, and the, the FBI agent is basically describing me as anti-American filmmaker who's known in the intelligence community as being anti-American. And that's how the intelligence agencies, I guess, perceive the work that I do. And so it's, in, it's in, included in the film. Risk is fascinating, absorbing, troubling, and beautiful. It opens May 5th. Laura Poitras, thank you for this film. And thanks for talking with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Next up, questions about Russia and the U.S. and Putin and Trump. And for that, we turn to Stephen Cohn. He's Professor Emeritus of Russian Studies and Politics at New York University and Princeton University. He's written many books, most recently, Soviet Fates and Lost Alternatives from Stalinism to the New Cold War. It's out now in paperback. He's a contributing editor to The Nation magazine, and he's been doing a series of weekly discussions about the new U.S.-Russia Cold War with John Batchelor on WABC in New York and other places. Stephen Cohn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. Well, for 40 years, you've been studying American-Russian relations as a scholar and a historian. You've also spent a lot of time in Russia. You know a lot of people there. You've said 
This is the most dangerous moment in American-Russian relations since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Why is that? Well, you know, I carry, John, the title of Professor Emeritus at two universities. Emeritus means old, and at two okay. universities it means very old. Okay. Uh, and I have followed American-Russian, previously Soviet relations, very closely as a scholar. And there have been occasions, both in Washington and Moscow, when I've seen how decisions are made at the top, inside. Uh, the reason that I consider the present relationship with Russia to be the most dangerous since 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And if compelled, I could make the case it's even more dangerous than 1962. Wow. And I think President Trump is right when he says that relations are an all, at an all-time low. And just because Trump says something doesn't mean it's wrong. The essence is simply this. By whatever name, we're in a new Cold War with Russia, but with fundamental differences that makes this Cold War more dangerous. First of all, the political epicenter of the new Cold War is in Ukraine, right on Russia's borders. And now, because there's a major NATO military buildup going on in the Baltic regions, all along Russia's western borders. During the previous Cold War, it was in faraway Berlin. So your listeners can figure out the potential for misconduct or accident or provocation, given that geopolitical reality. Secondly, we have three and maybe four Cold War fronts simultaneously now. We have Ukraine. We have the Baltic regions. That's the three Baltic, small Baltic states plus Poland, where NATO is building up. Syria where American and Russian airplanes are flying in the same airspace. Everyone knows about that. And now we have a fourth Cold War front in Washington, D.C., where the president of the United States, without precedented, precedent in modern history, is literally being accused of sedition and treason in collusion with the Kremlin. So these are extraordinary circumstances. And I would add to that, during the Cold War, after the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, the two sides, the Soviet Union and Washington, worked out certain rules of conduct, which for the next 30 or so years, until Reagan and Gorbachev thought they had ended the Cold War, both sides more or less abided by these mutual rules of conduct, which kept us safe, safe not only from hot war, but from the more catastrophic possibility of either side, side using a nuclear weapon. There are no rules of conduct today, none whatsoever. And then layer on this, the wild demonization of the Russian leader Putin, something that never occurred in Soviet times, and you have a very toxic combust combustible mix that makes this moment, I would say, dangerous, possibly beyond precedent. You've written about a new Cold War, and you've also written about a new McCarthyism in American politics, about critics of Trump who uh, link him to Putin. You call this perhaps the most important factor on today's American political media establishment. Your critics, including Katha Pollitt at The Nation, say this is not McCarthyism, that McCarthyism uh, was an attack by the government on ordinary people for their progressive activism and their ties to the Communist Party. 
criticizing the president is not McCarthyism. It's the opposite. Obviously, this is a matter of definition. What do you see as McCarthyism in the present political landscape? Well, John, the problem is, is certain phrases or words enter into the language of any country, including American English, as shorthand or code word for a large phenomenon. McCarthyism has played that role for decades. We know what it was. Uh, Katha in her column says it destroyed 10,000 people, that it dumbed down and chilled out American political discourse because people were slurred, uh, libeled, defamed, and people became afraid. And a kind of self-censorship, as well as a formal censorship, descended upon American life. And when Katha Pollock mocks the idea that any kind of McCarthyism may be unfolding in the land again, I think she's uninformed. And she puts forth a false definition. It's only McCarthyism if the government does it. The people don't have power. But the reality is, is that what is being called Kremlin Gate, this gossamer web of accusations or innuendos or circumstantial evidence against Trump and his, quote, associates, in fact, is being aided and abetted by powerful forces in the government, in particular, our intelligence services. Now, I've studied this, and this has been going on for almost a year. It clear, and this is a matter of published record now. It began around July 2016 with the Clinton campaign when they decided not to run against Trump and Pence, but against Trump, Putin. And then came this famous dossier, this uh, privately purchased uh, collection of allegations against Trump by a former British intelligence agency that was paid for first by one of Trump's primary opponents and then paid for by the Clinton campaign. How much they paid for it is an interesting question. But that document, about 35 pages, is a quintessential literary product of what we would call McCarthyism. It's slurring, it's libelous, uh, and there's no evidence whatsoever in it, no actual facts. There's a war going on at the top of our government, and it pivots around the Russia issue. So Pollitt is not correct in saying that the government, a wing of the government, a faction of the government, is involved in this new McCarthyism because it is leaking to the press. It is, it is feeding this series of accusations. And let us be clear, I didn't vote for Trump. But I don't recall an American president ever being accused of treason in connection with Russia. And what could damage our republic more and the making of policy toward Russia if things are as bad as I say they are or half as bad if this continues? And there's every sign that it's going to continue. And for people on the so-called liberal left, much less at The Nation magazine, to feed this, to be kind is not good. And let me emphasize, John, that I speak only for myself. I don't speak for my wife, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, who's the publisher and editor of The Nation. She and I have our own disagreements about this. Nor do I speak for a number of the other writers who loosely share my view at The Nation. So this, these are my own personal views and not representative of anything other 
than what I would say the actual factual record, because there's no facts for what Katha Pollitt and the others are alleging. Democrats concede that we don't have the hard evidence that they would like to have of collusion between the Trump campaign and uh, Putin. But they say that's the reason we need an independent investigation. Are you in favor of an independent investigation? And, and what exactly do you think should be investigated? John, sure. If it can be done in a objective, independent way, I'm for an in- independent investigation. But what I think should be investigated is not so-called Kremlin gate, Trump's alleged collusion with the with Kremlin, but what I would call intel gate, that is what the intelligence services have been up to politically in our political life since the summer of 216. Powerful forces in the CIA and the FBI, at least, and possibly the National Security Agency, have been playing a very active secret role in our politics. And I'm not talking about how, how it involves Mrs. Clinton. That's what should be investigated first and foremost. Uh, how would we construct an independent investigation? Now, what's going on in the House and the Senate, uh, and the Senate, I think, resumes its so-called investigation soon, is simply a circus. I mean, you look at the people they called to testify, and these are people they dug out of the mausoleum of the last Cold War, so-called experts on Soviet propaganda, who now seem to think the Soviet Union still exists uh, under Putin. Or look at Director Comey and what his testimony. He begins in the true spirit of John Edgar Hoover, uh, J. Edgar Hoover with a 10-minute lecture on Russian politics under sworn testimony, as though he's some kind of authority. And then when he's asked by a member of Congress if he could explain what is Gazprom, he says he never heard of it. Well, Gazprom is the largest, it's, it's the Russian gas company, the largest in the world, and is always associated with Putin's power. But the director of the FBI, a self-professed authority, on Russia, who's signing all sorts of documents for which there is no evidence, never had heard of it. So this is a circus. If we can think of a way for a truly independent investigation that can be somehow insulated for what's being published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, broadcast on MSNBC and CNN daily with honorable and impeccably objective Uh, chairs or co-chairs at the top, sure, we should investigate. But I'm wary of investigating rumor, innuendo, and and circumstantial evidence. I mean, I'm facetious when I say this, but I could say that Katha Pollitt's column and her podcast with you so represent the position of the Hillary Clinton campaign before and after the election that she's obviously on the payroll of the Clintons. The circumstantial evidence is that she echoes their views. And I could call for an investigation, which can't prove a negative. I mean, Pollitt and the others want proof that Trump is not a Kremlin agent. How in the world would he ever prove that? That's not the way liberals traditionally go about their political discourse. Uh, To me, uh, liberals and any decent political person uh, begins 
with two things. One, facts. Without facts, you, John, I, uh, doctors, uh, will malpractice. That's why doctors' first oath is do no harm. And liberals have done a lot of harm with these Kremlin Gate accusations. Secondly, is that the core of being liberal is John Stuart Mills on liberty. And that means always protecting the right of the minority to have it say publicly without being slurred and libeled. And liberals are now violating a lot of them, the majority of them, particularly members of Congress. Uh, these two first principles of liberal democracy. So this slurring of people, uh, whether it's Trump or myself, Stephen Cohen, as somehow in cahoots with the Kremlin, needs to stop, or we can't have any discourse about wise policy in this country. Stephen Cohen, read him at thenation.com. Steve, thanks for talking with us today. John, I doubt this is the end of the conversation in general, but thank you very much. Now it's time to talk about Trump and history. And for that, we turn to Eric Foner. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning historian who teaches at Columbia and one of America's leading historians of the Civil War and the Reconstruction era. He's written many books. My current favorites are Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution, The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery, and Gateway to Freedom, the Hidden History of the Underground Railroad. He's also a member of the editorial board of The Nation, and The Nation has just published a collection of his writings for the magazine over the past 40 years. It's called Battles for Freedom, The Use and Abuse of American History. Eric, welcome back. Uh, nice to talk to you, John. Well, the latest news about Trump and history is Trump saying on Monday, quote, people don't ask the question, but why was there a civil war? First of all, is it right to say that people don't ask why there was a civil war? I think I remember that question being on an American history exam I took in college during the 60s. So I'm pretty sure somebody asked me. Yeah, I think it is a fairly perennially asked question. Uh, maybe in Trump's uh, circles it's not asked. Uh, maybe at uh, Mar del Lago down there. But no, people ask this all the time, and indeed it was not only on your exam, but it's on the U.S. citizenship test that immigrants have to take to become naturalized, that that question is per persistently there. And what's interesting is the U.S. government allows two possible answers. There's not one right answer. Slavery is accepted as a correct answer, and states' rights is also accepted as a correct answer. Wow. But the, the notion, that, well, that's a sort of postmodern thing, that there is no actual truth. <laughs> okay. But, um, uh, yeah, the idea that, that nobody has thought about this for in the last 150 years or so is somewhat absurd. Well, Trump's main point was that it would have been a good thing if Andrew Jackson had lived down to uh, 1860 because he could have prevented the Civil War. What would it have meant to prevent the Civil War? <laughs> well, first of all, uh, old Hickory or Jackson uh, was a pretty forthright person. I think Trump admires him because he, he sees him as a strong, you know, a kind of alpha male, as they say, a guy who stood up for what he believed, military valor, which Trump, of course, doesn't have, you know, and he did 
you know, faced down South Carolina during the, when he was president, during the nullification crisis. He kind of forced South Carolina to back down uh, from nullifying the federal tariff. Uh, but the idea that Andrew Jackson, by force of will, force of personality, or military threats, would have uh, prevented secession from taking place is ridiculous. And um, by the time of the secession winter, there were really no grounds for compromise anymore. Now, what would it have meant to avoid the Civil War? Well, it depends what uh, what terms there would have been. Certainly, Lincoln, uh, who was not a warlike person, uh, wanted to avoid the war. Uh, and he could have, if he had given in to all the South's demands and said, all right, you guys can spread slavery into all the Western territories, no problem. Uh, and we will also suppress the abolitionist movement, which they were demanding. Uh, you could have avoided the Civil War, but the cost would have been the perpetuation of slavery forever, almost, and the destruction of democracy in the country. War is a horrible thing. And uh, nobody should celebrate that 700,000-odd people died in the Civil War, but the cost of avoiding it would have also been uh, a rather serious thing. And Trump also said that Andrew Jackson, quote, had a big heart, close quote. How, <laughs> how would you judge the size of Andrew Jackson's heart? Well, he was very devoted to his wife, very upset that she died soon after his election to being president. He adopted a, a Native American child at one point. But in larger terms, uh, I'm not sure that slaves would have felt that way. He owned quite a few slaves, and there's no evidence that he uh, treated them any better than any other slaves. Native Americans uh, probably wouldn't have said that, and that he was, you know, uh, he launched the expulsion of, of, of uh, the so-called five civilized tribes from the southeast out to Oklahoma, the, the, which led to the Trail of Tears and the death of many uh, Native Americans. So, um I'm not sure that would that would be the best way to describe Andrew Jackson as a man with a big heart. Now I'd like to move down to uh, to the present and and to look at Trump's place in our history, which is something you take up in this new volume of uh, your Essays for the Nation magazine that's called Battles for Freedom, the Use and Abuse of American History. You say there that it's not right to call Trump a unique figure in our history. It's not right to regard him as an aberration among presidents. I think a lot of uh, readers of the newspaper would disagree with that. There's no, they would say there's never been anything like Donald Trump. So why do you say he's not a unique figure? I think in in personality uh, he is somewhat unique. We you know all presidents are egotists. I think you'd have to say, but Trump is an egomaniac, and everything is viewed through him and his image, his brand, etc., his standing. But uh, in terms of his policies. Trump is uh, articulating ideas that have been around for a good while. His mode of running for uh, president drew on Nixon's Southern strategy, on Reagan's um, well thinly veiled uh, appeals to racism and prejudice of one kind or another. The notion of make America great, Reagan himself used that term. And uh, America first goes back a long way, as you know. It's not something, that idea that he invented. So I think that, you know, it's very easy for liberals like us, uh, radicals, progressives, whatever you want to call it, to say, oh, this guy is just from outer space. Uh, he has nothing to do with the American tradition. But I think a better way of looking at it is to think about what elements in American traditions did Trump draw on and mobilize in order to uh, be elected. And I think you will see that the he he is 
a kind of exaggerated form of much of what the Republican Party has been doing and saying ever since Barry Goldwater was their candidate. I think it's counterproductive to just dismiss, to say this is all Trump, his personality, his lunacy. You know, I think Trump's election is a triumph for certain elements of American history, maybe the less admirable ones, and uh, the Republican Party. It's not surprising that he got a very, very, you know, he got 88, 85, 90 percent of the Republican vote. Uh, so Republicans thought of thought that they recognized themselves in Trump. Uh, then he drew out some, he drew some independents and Democrats, which perhaps were the margin of victory. But uh, we shouldn't say that Trump just comes out of nowhere. Well, a lot of our friends are missing Obama quite a bit these days, but you say in your new book that you remain deeply disappointed by Obama, even even now when we've seen the uh, the alternative. Why why is that? I'm disappointed in Obama because of Obama and not because of Trump. Uh, I would prefer Obama to being president to Trump, but I'm disappointed in Obama given the opportunity with, that he came in with in 2009, the, uh, the fact that there was an economic crisis, the fact that he had won a large victory on the promise of change. He had mobilized a significant grassroots movement to um, get him elected. And uh, he came in in a crisis where people were demanding leadership. They were demanding action, the worst economic crisis since the Depression. And I think he did far too little. I mean, my basic disappointment in Obama is that he didn't do enough. Change kind of disappeared, or change, let us put it better, was incremental. It wasn't radical. Uh, Obama's not a radical. I don't expect him to uh, even do what Bernie Sanders was talking about. But he could have done a lot more uh, to um, fix the economy, to deal with some of the issues that Trump himself played on about unemployment, about the effects of globalization. I just think given the uh, opportunity that was available to him, you have to view Obama as a disappointment if you think significant change is desirable in this country. Well, one of the things that may be unique about Trump is the resistance that he has inspired. I don't remember ever seeing anything like the Women's March the day after he was inaugurated or the continuing demonstrations, marches, people showing up at their representatives' town halls. This seems to me something that's actually pretty impressive and maybe even historically significant. I think it is. I think the degree of resistance to Trump has been very heartening, and it's continued. Many people thought, all right, they'll have a big march right after he's elected, and then people will just sort of forget about it and go back to normal. But uh, there is a precedent, and it's not that long ago, which is the Tea Party. Remember, they all turned up at these uh, town halls in 2010. Uh, In a certain sense, we're seeing the uh, mirror image of that. Uh, and then the Tea Party um, galvanized support of of, the, of Republicans and was uh, important in winning the House of Representatives for Republicans in 2010. So it has happened recently that uh, from a different part of the political spectrum. Now, it's true that um, mass protests against the president right when he's elected are uh, it's hard to think of a uh, precedent for that, actually. Maybe it did take place, but I can't remember an example. But certainly uh, massive opposition to things that are going on in the administration is hardly new in our history. There's a long tradition of that. You know as well as I do the 60s, the anti-war movement, civil rights movement, etc. So people taking to the streets to um, 
express their opposition to government policy is a time-honored American tradition. And one other historical precedent that we wonder whether it might apply. Richard Nixon was charged uh, with the abuse of power in interfering with the Democrats' campaign for the presidency in 1972. That led to an impeachment investigation and to his resignation rather than an impeachment trial in the Senate. Now there are charges that the Trump campaign colluded with the Russians to interfere with the 2016 election, and they're demanding an investigation of that. The New Yorker this week has a big article about whether Trump could be impeached and what that would involve. There is historical precedent. What are you thinking about the prospects for a parallel to Nixon unfolding over the next two or three years with the Trump campaign? Yeah, a lot depends. Uh, you, I don't know what exactly happened in the campaign. It's, it seems obvious that uh, the Putin administration over there in Russia was quite um, uh, supportive of one way or another of Trump, whether that involved uh, acts which would be illegal and whether Trump or his campaign were involved in such acts uh, is remains to be demonstrated, I guess. They are investigating it. What will come of it, I don't know. It's not inconceivable at all that if some, uh, you remember the notion of the smoking gun, if some yeah. smoking gun uh, popped up, which indicated that Trump had been colluding with illegal hacking of, of Democratic Party emails and all this, uh, that you could see. You know, they're, they're, despite what I said about Trump being really a representative of important elements of the Republican Party, as we all know, the so-called Republican establishment is not comfortable with Trump, partly because he's such a loose cannon and they never know what he's going to be saying from one day to the next. Right. And there are plenty of them, I'm sure, who would be delighted to uh, get rid of Trump and have Pence as president. If Trump is impeached, uh, I just must go back to that old uh, adage of uh, history, watch out what you wish for. I think Pence would be actually a far more ideologically consistent, ultra-right-wing conservative president. And there are plenty of Republicans who wouldn't mind replacing Trump with Pence. And um, probably a lot of Democrats would be happy to impeach uh, Trump, but they might not. They might regret it after a while. Eric Foner, his new book is called Battles for Freedom, The Use and Abuse of American History. Eric, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. That's our sister podcast hosted by the nation's sports editor. This week, Dave talks to the only Muslim-American woman ever to win a medal at the Olympics and the first American woman ever to compete while wearing a hijab. Her name is Ibtihaj Muhammad, and she's on the fencing team. It's a fascinating report about what makes her excel on Dave Zirin's new Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts. 
at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.